Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, of course, embarked on a new platform a couple of years ago uh, called the Metaverse. It was a full, immersive, virtual, virtual reality experience where you put on these special glasses or goggles and you are then immersed into a world of images, even in a way to connect with others in this virtual, that is, only image-based world. And frankly, while some found this really intriguing and fascinating, others found it, uh, and it wasn't helped by the way it was rolled out and advertised, even by Zuckerberg himself, but some of us found this as rather silly, frankly, uh, promising so much and that would be accomplished only through images. And my favorite satire of the flop that would be known as the metaverse, I was put out as a video by the Iceland Tourism Group. And they put out a video as a spoof on the presentation of Zuckerberg advertising the metaverse, except they put out a video that talked about Icelandverse. <laughs> and it begins with a video of a so-called Zach Mosserbergason very Icelandic name, it sounds to me. And he introduces you to Iceland verse, and he says this, today I want to talk about a revolutionary approach on how to connect to our world without being super weird. It's enhanced actual reality without silly looking headsets. In our open world experience, everything is real. The water is wet Skies you can see with your eyeballs. Horses you can ride that have hair you can touch. The point was, actually go to Iceland. Really, the spoof is masterful. It's saying, why settle for virtual reality when you can have reality? Why settle for imitations when you can actually go there? Now, truth be told... Uh, maybe especially Iceland, it's not always easy to get to places uh, so majestic and, and beautiful as Iceland might be. So what if you can't go there and do that and touch that? Well, this is the appeal of virtual reality. Uh, this is the appeal in part of video games and why they're so popular. I could never throw a football like a star quarterback, or I could never race a go-kart against Mario and Luigi but I can play a game and do it. Only the trouble is, when when this happens, when we think we can do something or we have done the real thing, but only because we've done it virtually by way of an image or some video game or computer. You know, a child might say to you, of course I know I can drive. I always beat you and mom at Mario Kart. I'm great at it. It's a cinch, especially if there's no red shells chasing me. But thankfully, the DMV isn't doling out driver's license just because you got first place in a video game. Because that's a game. It's not real. You're just watching images flash on a screen and pressing buttons. It's not real driving. And most literally, it gets you nowhere. And yet, when it comes to worshiping God, because He is invisible, you can't see Him, we would rather than create a virtual one. We'd rather give ourselves an image thinking, well, this will help us 
focus. This will help us know Him better. This will help us worship Him. Only the trouble is, no matter how badly you want it, it's not the real Him. And actually, it distorts and changes your view of Him and so then falsifies your worship. So when it comes to our worship, when it comes to our thinking about God in our heart, the word for us this morning from the second commandment is, do not settle for any imitations. Guard your hearts from idols, images, icons, lookalikes. Worship the only true God known through His Word in Jesus Christ. Do not settle for imitations. And again, the words of the Apostle John in the end of 1 John 5, guard your heart from idols. And we'll see that unfold in three commands. It kind of serves as three reasons why we should not settle for imitations, how we can guard our hearts from idols. And the first is this, don't settle for imitations. Guard your heart from idols, which means don't settle for any imitations. Verse 4, God is too great, He's too glorious, He's too good to be compared to anything in this creation. All comparisons, all then representations of Him, they fall, they fall woefully short from the true God. And so, instead of compromising, He just forbids it. Guard yourselves from images, from idols. That's what we find as we turn to what is called the second of the Ten Commandments. And what we uncover is this. In God does not merely care that He is worshipped. You might say that's the concern of the first command, you shall have no other gods before me. But He's concerned with how He is worshipped. And you don't get to figure that out on your own if you want to worship and serve the true God. The first commandment is about worshipping the right God. The second commandment is about worshipping the right God the right way. And that's the only way. In particular, in the right way to worship Him, He does not permit images. He does not permit pictures to be made of Him that would somehow, we think, enhance our worship because we're so visually oriented. No images, no idols, no imitations permitted in worship. And so let's read this. It's captured in the second commandment that is namely the first part of verse 4. But it's explored further from verses 4 to 6. What does this mean? But the, but the capital command for us is just there in verse 4, and so we do well to slow down and look at that for a bit. But let's look at this. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So as we talked about last week, which each of these 10 words they, they serve as overarching commands. The thou shalt not, right? These are commands that abide, that continue. They're not to be compromised or changed. And the command in here in particular is, thou shalt not make a carved image. Or you, we know this from the King James, a graven image. Or some of your translations say, idols. 
But very literally, the, the word comes, this word graven or carved image comes from a root word that means to carve, to make, to, to hewn something or chisel it out of stone. That, that's what an idol is. That, that, it's an image. It's an image created by man. It's a little statue made of wood or stone. Maybe it's covered with gold. And it's used to represent to you God, to stand in His place because He's invisible. And it is thought that you can connect better to this God through the image, that the image is a gateway to worship, maybe into His presence. Well, the true God forbids anything like that, note this, in any way, shape, or form to be made or used in our worship of Him. You can't do it. For, why is this? No images are allowed in worship. Why? Because there is nothing in all creation. You can look high, you can look vertical, you can look down below. There's nothing you can find anywhere that can compare to your God. There's nothing that can rightly stand in for Him. Notice the way Moses explores this very command in Deuteronomy chapter 4. You can turn to Deuteronomy or you can listen closely. But in Deuteronomy 4, he explores this command in a bit more detail. You understand the book of Deuteronomy is the second law. It's the second giving of the law. It's the, the explanation of the law. And we find it here in chapter 4. And the first thing he stresses... As he recounts this event, when God appeared on Mount Sinai and he speaks, remember, literally, out of the fire, these ten commands. But Moses highlights for them, they never saw any form of God on Mount Sinai. They only heard his voice. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 read, Then the Lord God spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and He declared to you His covenant, which He commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments, or literally in the Hebrew, the Ten Words, referring back to Exodus 20. And He wrote them on two tablets of stone. But to emphasize here, you saw no form, or you saw no likeness, and that's the very word from Exodus chapter 20. You saw no likeness there on the mountain. And we gather... This was done quite intentionally. God could have taken a form. He could have appeared as a man or anything else or as a lion like Aslan, but He did not. There was no form or image, no physical representation there, only a naked voice. And why so? Why did He do this? Well, at least for the very reason, because He knows if you saw an image you will then make an image. Look at this. This is Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 and following. He says, Therefore, Israel, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on that day when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, out of the midst of the fire. You saw no form. You need to beware lest you act corruptly, which would mean making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. And then he lists all the places you might find figures, and it's basically all of creation. He says, be careful lest you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. 
things that the Lord your God allotted to all peoples under the whole of heaven. Suffice it to say, the Lord our God forbids images, statues, idols, icons, and whatever other pictures and images you might say could represent Him, He forbids them all to be in any way used in worship. No imitations, no off-brands, no look-alike gods. He has not sponsored anything in creation to stand in His place to then receive His worship, to receive His praise, His obedience. None. For if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, after they get the Ten Commandments, shortly after this, they're going to go break at least the second one, and they're going to make this big old golden calf, this huge idol. And by the way, they call this calf Yahweh. They call it the true God. And to their minds, this might be a very worthy representation of God. Now to us, now in modern times, we're like, (laughs) that sounds like a horrible God to worship. Why would you represent God as some great cow? But in the ancient Near East, their context, the cow or the, the bull represented power, represented strength, represented vitality. And yet it's woefully misleading all the same, of course. Yeah, an ox may be strong, but we also know that the ox is also dumb, mute and stupid. Or you might say, the sun, it is bright and it shines everywhere, but it is also mute and unthinking. Or a great man, he may be brilliant, but he's still just a man, nothing Nothing to be compared to the almighty Yahweh God who delivered His people out of Egypt. For a man or anything else in creation has so many limits, so many failures, so many limitations that God does not have and never will. He is the Lord God. And in the praises of Israel as they were delivered out of Egypt, who is like Him? There is none. So how dare we compare Him to anything, to image Him as anything? For as soon as you try to image Him or imagine Him, you are necessarily distorting Him and misrepresenting Him, you see. You've then made a God of your own. And in the making of the image, you have become idolaters. This struck me even just on this past Friday. Our fellowship group, some of the men in our group were reading through a theology book. And the last chapter we just talked about on Friday was about the Trinity. You know about the Trinity? One God, three persons, in one. How does that work? That's where your mind goes. Well, and it was lovely because James Montgomery Boyce in the book, he, he gives you some analogies, and then every analogy he gives, he says, and that doesn't work for this reason. And there's this analogy, but it's also wrong for this reason. And here's another one, it's also wrong because God cannot be contained in your brain. He's too great. No analogies can be made. So no image can be made. And if we dare make an image, whether literally or in our own very mind, We have then become idolaters, breaking this command. Now, a few implications immediately must come to mind that we must explore for a few moments here. Such that, to clarify, when it says, back to Exodus 20, you shall not make for yourself 
a carved image, or in a likeness of anything, is that to be understood in an absolute sense? That is, should we never make any image of any kind? Is all art, then, illegal, illicit? Can we not sculpt figures, you know, sculptures, figurines? Can our children not draw elephants and lions and tigers? Are pieces of art totally out of bounds? Can you not print family pictures? Those are images, aren't they? No, that's not what appears to be excluded here in this even absolute command. Because, and we know this, because God will actually command His people at times to make some images or even statues or icons, you might say. In the nation of Israel, later on, Israel, they're going to be disciplined by snakes because they're complaining against the Lord. And his solution is the Lord commands Moses, hey, you're going to make a bronze serpent and put it on a stick, and then anyone who looks at it, they're going to find healing. That was a commissioned snake to be made by the Lord. And that's not merely about what happens outside the place of worship, but even inside the place of worship, God will commission some images to be involved in the congregation's worship of God. That is, as we see, we'll see it some as we get through the rest of Exodus, Lord willing, but you see it when the temple's built, of course. God's going to empower certain men with particular skills to weave and to draw and to form special images throughout the temple or tabernacle the place where God will be worshipped, the true God. And chief among them are going to be the cherubim, these two man-sized cherubim, these winged angelic beings that overlook the Ark of the Covenant, the box where God on the top meets His people in the most holy place. God will commission those images to be made to adorn His place of worship. So in one sense, even in worship, an image might be okay, but, 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 but understand, there is no image in the temple or tabernacle. There is no thing that stands in the place of God. And actually, this was the shocking thing to all of the nations around Israel. Even as the Romans go into the temple or the Babylonians as they take it over, something is conspicuously missing from Israel's temple, and it's namely God. Why? Because He's invisible. There's no image to represent him. There's no idol found in the temple. They worshiped, and so do we, an invisible God. No statue, no image, no icon can stand in his place, can be compared to him, and could possibly represent him. And yet, here's the trouble with our sinful hearts we keep trying. We want an image. We want a God that we can craft, a God that we can form, a God that we can define the boundaries of. Because if we can do that, we think we understand it. We can define it. And that then is a God that we, as we define Him, we can control Him. Because we understand Him. In other words, if we can make a God, that's a God we can manipulate. That's not a God we submit to. That's a God, we know how He works, we know His boundaries, so I can use Him and influence Him for my ends. One pastor puts this so well when he says, people are always looking for a more user-friendly God, a God who can be adapted to suit their purposes. They say, 
If I do this, then God will do that. If I follow the right parenting method, then my kids will grow up necessarily to be godly. But, and he rightfully adds, God will not be manipulated. When he commands us not to make idols, he is saying he will not be captured, he will not be contained, he will not be assigned or managed by anyone or anything for any purpose. God wants you to trust him and obey him, not use him. But we want to be in charge. We want to know the limits of our God, get our minds around him. We want to define Him. We want to think of Him how we want to think of Him. But that is not worship. That is idolatry, making a God of our own. And so we must put down our idols. We must submit to the notion of how He's revealed Himself in His Word. And we must submit to the notion, you can't fit God in your finite brain. Again, like he told Israel, he did not reveal himself in a form with boundaries. He did not give them an image, but he gave them a naked voice. He revealed himself to them through a word. See, God has determined to show us what he's like by giving us a book. And the book has no pictures, there's no images in this book, it's a written revelation. Just like he did to Israel out of the mountain, God speaks to show us what he's like, but through a voice, through a book, through his written word in the Holy Scripture. Oh, but what about the illiterate? Or it is said, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. But here's the trouble. Here's the problem with any image, any icon, any statue, any crucifix. It lets you yourself fill in the thousand words. You will interpret the image by your own preconceived and longed for, and I would add, wayward notions. A picture may give you a thousand words, but it's words of your own making. God gives you His word direct that need no interpretation. He doesn't give you artwork to guess at the intentions of the author. He gives you His word The good news is not left to an image. Its message is given in words, calling you to trust in the invisible God who saves sinners, who trust in the cross work of Christ on their behalf. A crucifix will not tell you that. A crucifix cannot save you. It is dead, mute, in that sense, dumb, lifeless. So why worship a crucified Savior who painfully died, that's all that appears in a crucifix, when the gospel preaches, the word preaches a crucified Savior who conquered death and is alive. And he's now alive in heaven to receive and forgive any who call upon him. Not in their own ideas and in their own notions, but submit and even confess their own ideas that we would dare think of God in our own terms. But submit to yourself to God, to His revelation, to His Word. That's how we will truly know Him. 
Worship the only true God in Jesus Christ. Again, to echo the words of the Apostle John, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Second, don't share his worship. Guard your heart from idols, lest you share his worship, the first part of verse 5. We must guard ourselves from images because our God, He's too great to be shared in that sense. That is, to share His glory, to share your worship with anyone or anything else. He is due all the glory in worship alone. And back to Exodus 20, this implication surfaces as we look at the next two commands that come in the first part of verse 5. And it's evidently these two commands of verse 5 that explain for us what it means to set up an idol from verse 4. And it's all about worship. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, when it mentions you shall not bow down to them or serve them, there's some question here. Is he talking about idols, that you shouldn't bow down to them or serve them, or is he talking about merely other gods? And I will tell you that the answer is yes. It works both ways. Understand that Israel, when Israel sinned in making the golden calf, you might try and say in the most restrictive sense, well, they were only disobeying the second command by making an image. They didn't disobey the first because they thought their image was of Yahweh, the true God. Even as Aaron crafted the calf and it came out of the fire, he says, he then tells all of Israel, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. We're going to worship Yahweh, but now we're going to do it through this image. So it seems like you might say, well, they weren't wholly wrong. They were just a little misguided. Their worship was just a little bit off. But here's the thing. And here's how the biblical logic runs in Scripture. Once you make an image, clearly breaking the second commandment, you will inherently be breaking the first as you worship it. For that image cannot at all represent the true God. And so your bowing down to it, your reverence to it, no matter what you call it and what you name that thing, it is not God. And so that is false worship. And to prove this point, this isn't just logic, but this is where Scripture runs. Psalm 106 brings this out. It's a retelling of the history of Israel. And in the 106th Psalm, he recounts this very situation and he diagnoses the very problem. Psalm 106, here's what we find. This is verses 19 and 20 of Psalm 106. It says, They made a calf in Horeb, that's at the foot of Mount Sinai there, and they worshiped a metal image. Yeah, but they called it, they called it Yahweh. They, they made an image and bowed to it, sure, but they were worshiping Yahweh just in the wrong way when they bowed down to this cow, calling it God. They were just misguided. At least they got His name right, right? No. For the psalmist then adds, further describing their idolatrous sin, he says, for they exchanged 
the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. There's been an exchange, no matter what they call the image, such that it continues, they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Did you catch that? They forgot God, their Savior. Wait, what do you mean? They didn't forget. They knew His name still. What do you mean they forgot? Yes, again, but that's not the point. Once you make an idol, you have so distorted your view of God in your mind that no matter what you call the thing, you cannot be worshiping the true God. You can't. Not if an image, not if an idol's involved. So they not only broke the second commandment when they made the golden calf, but they also broke the first. You shall have no other gods before me. And they also probably broke the seventh and the ninth and probably the tenth. We'll get to that later. But the point is, no matter what you call it, worship directed to anything or anyone other than the true God is not genuine worship. It's not acceptable worship. It is false, idolatrous worship. Now, three implications follow out of this that we we must take a moment to consider. That is, Despite some faith's centuries of claims to the contrary, you cannot separate veneration and worship when it comes to God and the things of God. See, the Orthodox churches and the Catholic faith make abundant uses of images, icons exclusively for the Orthodox, and then add statues, typical paintings, and pictures for the Catholics. And now, to be fair, despite our Protestant caricatures and straw men that we might prop up with those we disagree, understand, the Greek Orthodox and the Roman Catholics are not wholly ignorant of their Bibles. They've not forgotten or blotted out over this command against carved images. And yet, if you observe one of their services, that's exactly what it looks like. That they're worshiping all of these images. They bow down to the images of Jesus, let alone of Mary and the apostles. They kiss the pictures. They rub the statues. They will even light candles in front of these things. I mean, it sure looks like worship to me, but they'll reassure us, oh, no, 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 you poor Protestant. You misunderstand. We're not worshiping. We're reverencing. We're showing respect. That's all. We know better than that. We know what the command says. They'll reassure you. We're not worshiping idols. We're showing respect to the saints and to Jesus and through these statues and icons and images. I mean, shouldn't we honor them? So they say they're only venerating, showing respect to them, that it's, oh, it's not worship, though it might look like it. But the Ten Commandments say, and the Reformers, as they understood, clearly said, to paraphrase, if it looks like a duck, if it swims like a duck, quacks like a duck, then it's probably a duck. If it looks like worship, sounds like worship, bows down just like worship, then I'll guarantee you it's worship. It's ascribing God-like worth to something that's not Him. 
It's an image. It's an icon. It's a picture of ink, wood, stone, gold, and paper. That's idolatry in God's eyes. Whatever you think you're doing in your heart, no matter what you, how you wish to qualify it, it's idolatry. You have a lookalike God that actually doesn't look like him very much at all. So that's one. Another clarification. Does that then mean every image of Jesus, picturing his humanity at least, is wrong or sinful? There's been great debate even among the Reformation Protestants and the Reformers that fell out of this. And if case the historical argument doesn't excite you, oh, this goes right to the modern day and our concerns. Uh, take one example. There's arisen this wildly popular miniseries called The Chosen. And it depicts Jesus and his followers. Jesus is played by a human actor. Is this wrong inherently? Or in case maybe you haven't seen The Chosen with the other, seriously, 500 million people that have seen something of it. Or there is Mel Gibson's passion that recounted the death of Jesus. Or there is, to hit very close to home, there's the Jesus film. Which, by the way, we support a missionary family who is like the tip of the spear of getting that film across the world. So perhaps you can gather, I don't take that though some in the reform circles do, that every portrayal of Jesus is inherently wrong. I do not understand that to be, whether it's on film or in a play or on paper. That is, I do not think we should stop supporting the Jesus film. By the way, which is a word-for-word -word reading and acting out of Luke's gospel. And neither do I think we need to jettison all of the children's books that show Jesus and his humanity and his human flesh, portraying him as a typical first-century Jewish man. Now, why do I make those concessions? On what grounds is are these things at all permissible? Well, in part, it's because of the basis that I see here of these two commands in verse 5. That is, to not bow down to Him and serve Him. Those commands explain the point of verse 4. You shall not make graven images. The point of not making the graven images is that you are making them either in truth, whether you intentionally think so or not, but you're making them ultimately to worship and serve them and bow down to them. And so if your portrayal of Jesus is not in any way, now that's careful, but in any way used to praise or worship Jesus, and certainly not to stand in Jesus' place, then I would say it is permissible. It doesn't mean I necessarily think it's a good idea, to be clear. And so I might create some fine distinctions in our church life and say this, yes, it's okay to have a picture of Jesus in a children's Sunday school class or a flannel graph or in a children's Bible. But it is clearly not okay to then project that image up, say, on this screen this morning, and that we would turn around and pray to this image, or to sing to the image, or in any way to do what looks like worship to the image. That's clearly forbidden. Now, finally, though I might concede that these images are permissible, that means not inherently wrong, you understand we must be oh so careful. We must not forget this command's warning. Because here's the thing, the command our God understands our hearts and the way they're wired. You're going to be prone, you're going to be inclined to worship images instead of the true God. Have you seen one of those movies or maybe that show and then actually thought in your prayer life of that image you saw? 
You're going to be inclined to form or make a Jesus of your own making, your own conception, the one you like best that maybe grates upon you the least. You're going to create, maybe it's just even in your own mind, but an image of what Jesus is like. And whenever image you're making, it's going to be off unless it's wholly driven by what is in the Word. Where we have no physical record of Jesus, what He looked like. Do not settle for imitations. Instead, guard your hearts from going after idols, after, and this is the point, man-made conceptions of God, of Jesus even. Go straight to where you can actually encounter the glory of Christ. It's in the preached Word, the perfect Word of God. Don't share His worship with anyone else. Finally, don't suppose His indifference. This is not important just because it's merely in the Bible. This is not an important issue just because we like to debate theological nuance. Don't suppose God is indifferent about your worship and how you choose to worship Him. Why must we not make any images? Verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for, here's the reason, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's the reason. Now, the word jealous or jealousy, that strikes us as an ugly word. Uh, We think of a child who's had a friend that got a special toy, and the the child's jealous of their friend. So they're rude to the friend because they got something that they didn't, and they poo-poo the toy, pretending, oh, I don't really like it. It wasn't that great. That's an ugly response that when you wish you had that thing that someone else has. Frankly, that kind of version of jealousy, it's probably a lot closer to coveting in chapter or the 10th commandment. The jealousy here is different. It's closer to our word zealous. Our God is a God of zeal. If we can put it this way, He's a God of passion. That means He's not indifferent. He's not complacent. Especially when it comes to His glory, His worship from His people that He redeemed. Because in case it wasn't clear what He means by that He's zealous or a jealous God, He explains what He means as He continues as He goes on in verses 5 and 6. Namely, His jealousy or zealousness leads to two things, either visiting iniquity on people or showing steadfast love to people. Look at verses 5 and 6 together. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for, reason, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And what does that mean? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So then a jealous God, a passionate God, He's either going to visit iniquity on people and generations of people, or He's going to show steadfast love to people. But which determines which? How do you know whether He's going to visit iniquity or whether He's going to show steadfast love? And what He's explaining is in His zeal, it's not arbitrary, it's not whimsical, it's not random. His zealous response is driven by how you respond to Him, either in worshiping Him or not, giving Him thanks and the glory that He deserves or not, or whether you give that to false gods, to idols. Because look at the end of verse 5. Here's how He responds to those who hate me. 
to those who hate me from whatever generation they are, the first, the second, the third, or the fourth, if you hate him, giving his thanks and praise to something else, then he will visit your iniquity upon your head. He will judge you, is the idea. Consequently, to those who love God and keep his commandments, like this very command, to them he shows his steadfast love, his unchanging love. Now we got a comment because this is easily misunderstood. Sounds like it's not commensurate. It sounds like his zeal against or his zeal for judgment is stronger than his zeal for mercy. Because it sounds like his zeal for judgment results in these generational curses. Because back to verse 5, it sounds like if your daddy sins, then judgment's going to fall on the son and then the grandson and the grandgrands and so forth. But his steadfast love only goes to a few thousand. And the, the kicker is because we assume that the way this is phrased, that the daddy sins, no matter what the kid thinks or does, he's going to be punished. But notice at the end of verse 5, this is so determinative to teach us about how God's going to respond. Whatever generation it is, the end of verse 5, it ends with, of those who hate me. They are the ones punished. So, this tells us three things. First, those punished are those themselves that hate God and they steal His glory and give it to others. By the way, that's entirely consistent with how God speaks about His judgment, even in the law of God in the Old Testament. Listen to this. This is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. It reads, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, and nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Your own guilt condemns you, not the guilt of your father. Second, this does, though, illustrate that a father or a parent, let alone even a whole generation's influence, is huge. It is not determinative, note this, but it is most significant. And there's no escaping for the son or the grandson that says, oh, but my granddaddy did that and he turned out okay. That's not how this works. There's no refuge in what your grandparents did, either in their disobedience or obedience. You will stand before God. But third, this also teaches us probably that we've misunderstood something in this text. Because actually, as he compares the judgment and as he compares the steadfast love, the weight all goes down in the steadfast love. This is what gets emphasized, despite how we might read that. And to clarify, I need to show you something. You look back to verse 5. He talks about visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth. But literally in the Hebrew, there's no word generation there. It's just to the third and the fourth. Now, they didn't get it wrong in, I think, every English translation when they added the word generation. Why? Because they need to explain what the Hebrew means. You can't make sense of it in English without the word generation, basically. And so it's added in. But it should be added in in our understanding as we continue reading and move on into verse 6. Such that, and the note has it perfect in the ESV. So when it says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands. But it's not mere thousands of peoples. But what's the implication? It's thousands of generations. Eternal love on those that are His. His steadfast love lasts for an eternity. His anger, His judgment is but for a moment in that sense for His people. 
And understand, his steadfast love is far greater. It abounds. It overflows. It triumphs over judgments to those who will break the chain and not walk in their father's sins. You don't have to do that. You don't just have to stick with your father. He worshiped icons. You don't have to. You can break the chain, and you can stand right with God because there's abundant mercy through Christ. And it's his zeal for his name and for his son and for the people he has redeemed that's going to see it through, and that's why he responds the way he does. Because understand, this kind of love commitment he has, this zeal, he can't be apathetic. He can't be indifferent. His love is far too strong. Again, it calls to mind the analogy we made last week. A husband should be jealous of his wife, and the wife should be jealous of her husband. And if she's not or he's not, then you would say, then he doesn't really, he's not committed to love. You know, to put it in the whole context of what we've seen in this command, in a modern-day illustration, think about this. Oh, worshiping an image, maybe it's not that big of a deal. Okay, let's say there's a husband, and he's on a business trip. And he goes to visit a woman, a prostitute, but he says in his mind, but I'm thinking about my wife the whole time. Do you think the wife appreciates that? Also, you could insert pornography in the same situation. That's love given to someone else. Even if you say it's to your wife, it's not. And he's passionate about his love for his people because it works both ways. You see, that's what these commandments, these first two are really about. It's all about your worship. It's all about what are you devoted to? What is your supreme love? What do you live for? What makes you tick? When you get up and your feet finally hit the ground out of bed, what gets you going? What are you going to sacrifice for, and why are you going to do that? Well, whatever it is, that's your functional God. That's the one you serve. That's the one you bow down to. That's the thing you love and obey most. Well, is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Because understand, and that's where the Ten Commandments begin. Because where do the Ten Commandments begin? They don't begin in verse 3. Really, when God starts speaking, it starts in verse 2. And where does he begin? I am the Lord your God. And what has he done? I've already redeemed you. He's faithful and committed to you. And he's calling you, come and be faithful and committed to me. He gave us the ultimate, giving us his son. He gave till it hurts that we can even understand for our salvation, but for our rightful praise and restored worship to live aright to him. I mean, isn't that the call of Romans chapters 12, 1 and 2, when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Well, what mercies are we talking about? It's Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11. Justified by faith alone through the work of Christ alone. That mercy coming to you, how can you respond but in one way? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a living sign of worship a living sign of love and devotion back to the one who loved you more than you know. That's what we worship. It's the God we worship as we come to remember at this table. 